care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kay Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Julia, how's your quarantine time going? Are you with your you're with your family, Massachusetts, right? I am. I uh I left New York for the first time since December of last year, I guess. Uh and now I'm back in Massachusetts. I'm sitting in my my childhood bedroom right now. Uh you know, like all like all girl bosses do. Um, yeah, no, it's been it's been nice. A lot of fresh air. Who knew? Uh, it's, feel great. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's a uh, it's good that you're not a weed smoker because I do know that you have a cop dad. And I'm thinking through this, and I was wondering if anyone has ever been arrested by their own cop dad. I mean, my brother was extremely close to being arrested, like in high school. Absolutely. Yeah. He was selling, selling weed out of the house. He was, uh, yeah. If you're, if you're a cop and your kid is selling weed out of the house, that has to kind of make you feel like sort of, uh, not to, you know, not to be like this, but you gotta feel kind of like a cock, you know, (laughs) like, oh yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Huge cock. Yeah. Um, definitely has that energy. My house, my rules, my house, uh, the rules of the the, the state, you well, know, he's yeah. And, and he's so he's retired now. And we were actually talking about this. And now he now that like because it's it's like legal in Massachusetts now weed uh, and there are like dispensaries and stuff oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So now he's like all on the side of like people shouldn't be in jail for for those those offenses and their records should be expunged. And it's like, all right, well, where were you on this before the law caught up to it? Um, but anyways, that's really neither here nor there. My parents uh, just debated for 30 minutes about which vacuum I should get. And I had no input on it. Um, so it's really, you know. You can go home again, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, my my friend Anya is is cat sitting for me. She's staying at my apartment while I'm away with with my cat, and I'm. Uh, it's the first time I've been away from her, and I don't I don't know if you you felt this, but I felt when I had been gone for like two hours, I was going crazy. I was just like, "What is she doing without me?" <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, my cats are just like fucking sleeping all the time. They're like lazy as fuck. So I just mostly assume that that's what's going on. But I don't know. Maybe I'm a bad cat parent. No, that is mostly what they do. I'm just, uh, I'm just very nervous. I just, (laughs) yeah, I'm, I don't know. I mean, this house that I'm living in right now, like for a long time, it was just me and Jake. And now there's like all these fucking cats here and two new roommates moved in. And it just feels like uh, all of a sudden my uh, my core experience is very full. I i don't know. I mean, I wouldn't really say that I'm fully coring anymore. I, You know what? I'm just going to admit to it. I, I am sometimes seeing people outside. I put on a mask. I go for a walk with a friend outside, which is, I think... That's allowed. It is allowed, I know. But there's people that are just... I mean, let's talk about this for a minute. There is so much kind of like shaming of people sort of leaving the house at all and i think what they're finding right now is that you know if outside especially if you're both standing far apart and you're wearing masks the risk of uh, covid transmission isn't necessarily non-existent but it's like it's pretty close low yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty close <laughs> yeah um you know uh, and th- I was just thinking about that because it's like I see so many pictures of people on social media and they'll be like, you know, people on a beach and like kind of, you know, spread even far apart, you know, um, and people are like, oh, you know, we're going to you know, like these people are going to give everyone COVID. And, and it's like th- those aren't the people that are going to give everyone COVID. The people that are like it- partying inside, you know, yeah, no, the people who are trying to do like indoor dining is that that's been like the thread between all of the the major resurgence among uh, among the states. And, you know, I've, I've seen a, pu- a bunch of public health experts 
interviewed saying that like the beach is probably like one of the safest places to be. Yeah. Uh, um, not, I mean, yeah. Uh, not, not if you're in Florida, but if, uh, you know, if you're in, in any of the States where, where they've actually taken, taken this seriously since the beginning, um, yeah, I don't know. It's Florida but, is a is a just a dangerous place in general. It is, and yeah. you know what? Uh, I haven't gone in uh, since I went to Disney World as a kid. I don't know if I'll go back. I, I can't I, see myself going back. Uh, I didn't ever go to Disney World as a child, but I did open for Margaret Show in Tampa, Florida once. Um and comparable experiences, I think. Yeah, it was it was a weird (laughs) thing because it was like Margaret Cho's crowd, which is like mostly very stylish gays Mm -hmm. and feminist women, and then it was also just Tampa, you know, like it was like just a lot of kind of conservative people, lots of like bleach blonde hair. It was it was just it was a really interesting mix. I had a fun time, but I definitely was like not i was like you know i may not go back to to tampa until the next time (laughs) i i open for margaret cho you know i think about this a lot that i i'm very grateful that i live in a part of the world where i am uh where it's you know legally allowed to have brown hair because a lot of times when i when i see people like from i feel like so many people so many uh so many women in la have blonde hair uh every time i see any Australian people it just seems like having brown hair is against the law yeah no I totally I think I yeah in California I always felt that I think that was part of the reason why I moved to the east coast because I you know I'm a a pasty brunette Mm -hmm. so I was like well you know I need I need to go where I can at least be a seven, you know. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and and baby, we're here. I don't I don't get tan. I get pink or yeah. red. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I get it's it's pure red or nothing at all. Yeah, well, at least in New York, people will still fuck me, which is actually my way of transitioning to our next topic, <laughs> which is birth control. Birth uh, control. So, unfortunately, uh, we are recording this on Wednesday the 8th, and uh, today the the Supreme Court um, made a decision upholding a Trump administration rule that uh, majorly cut back on the ACA requirement that insurers provi- provide birth control as part of their health care plans, meaning they cover... Um, cover birth control and you know <sighs> yeah I mean it's like this is this is a complicated one right because I mean there are so many people who don't even have uh, health care plans you know like sure. is there so many people who are like participating in you know whatever I hate this word but like gig economy um, people who are you know working uh, hourly people who are not um, working full time, you know, people whose uh, companies who have found ways to classify them as independent contractors, mm-hmm. even when that's BS, and you know, or just like people who have, you know, never had it in the first place, or you know, have been laid off or whatever. Like, there's so many people who like just don't have access to, uh, you know, birth control through their insurance whatsoever, right? But you know, this is still an extremely misogynistic ruling you know Um, and uh clarence thomas wrote the majority opinion uh which is he doesn't usually he has very little to say uh most of the time but he loves to pop out at the worst possible opportunities um can i guess can i guess what it was (laughs) <laughs> he was just like I. Uh, I prefer to think about women getting combed in, yep. and that it, uh, that it that it works. Yeah. <laughs> Majority opinion, Clarence Thomas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, obviously, our our boys Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh joined him. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, this is one of those things. This is we we talked about um, with the. LGBTQ 
case and also the most recent um, the most recent ruling about trap laws where John Roberts was the the swing vote and he was the deciding vote. He sided with the the other conservative justices here. And it's so this is I just want to remind anyone who I mean, if you listen to our podcast, you are probably already know this, but it's just like this this man is not less conservative than the other ones. He just has like a modicum of shame and of conscience uh, in in terms of like the I think the more extreme cases. But yeah, as Kate was saying, I mean, this is like obviously you should not have any ties. Like your your employer should not be controlling your health insurance at all, and we should have. Medicare for all. Um, but I do wonder, even if we did have Medicare for all, like, in which ways, like, conservatives would try to, in some way, like, exempt women from certain, <laughs> from certain rights to health care. Because yeah. as we all know, these employers, these like, employers who has who have, quote, unquote, religious objections to birth control, which is absolutely absurd, even, like, you know, Catholics were the ones who were always very like anti-birth control. And now it's like 98% of Catholic women say that they use birth control. Um, But that's really neither here nor there. It's just even the employers that say that they have religious objections to birth control, I'm sure that they are not making the same calls about things like Viagra or Cialis or like things that like men who are far past the like reproductive age. Um, yeah. Because that's the whole thing is that like, I don't know, this like draconian view that like sex should only be for reproduction. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, today I, I think, you know, I just, I, I want to make sure that my, uh, employers is all good with what I'm doing so I was gonna just uh, pop off an email to HR to see if it's cool if my boyfriend pulls out and if they have <laughs> any kind of thoughts on where specifically he should right. come tits stomach you know it's uh if you, I just want to make sure my employer's on board if you could cc me on that email I'd really appreciate it and yeah. um yeah maybe we can just like get a bunch of people on the email and see See what's what uh, for for Kate's sex life. Um, I, pl- I plan on taking this to the highest level. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking, you know, about the um, the ruling that we were talking about the other day, um, which you know, like ostensibly means that you can't be fired for being trans and. I mean, I think it's really important to celebrate these victories and I think it's really important to be upset when we do have these you know horribly misogynistic rulings like this one today um but you know it's just like also a lot of people are the 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 type of justice that's available to people or not is just not necessarily dependent on these court rulings if you're trans and your employer fires you for being trans and you can't afford to bring a lawsuit against them well then you know the law didn't change for you and you know there's so many people in this country that have no health care at all so i understand why people want to dismiss this stuff as not important and i think that that's the wrong move but Mm -hmm. i also think that the liberal tendency to like want to you know make everything about what the supreme court does or not you know like especially in abortion that happens people are like oh you know like the supreme court's gonna like um overturn roe versus wade okay well obviously it would be terrible if they did that but abortion is effectively illegal in many places in this country if you're poor you know so i think yeah, it's just uh, a lot depends on how much uh, money you have. I feel like um, some kind of, uh, you know, leftist William Carlos Williams. So much depends upon how much money you have. <laughs> yeah. 
It's true. No, it's true. And, you know, a lot of the employers that would have these objections, they are big employers in places where, like, the minimum wage is very low. And, yeah, they're, you know, the Hobby Lobbies of the world, the Walmarts, the, like, I, it's, it's very frustrating, but you're right. Obviously there are many States in this country where it's effectively illegal to get an abortion. And, you know, we've seen time and again, there's so many studies have shown that when obviously when birth control is more accessible, people have less abortions, which is allegedly what Republicans want. But then they say that they object to women using birth control. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I was kind of, you know, this was a big week for me and reply guys. Cause I'm pr- producing a, um, fundraiser th- through Philly DSA socialist feminist committee for, uh, Western Pennsylvania for choice, which is an organization that provides funds to people who need abortions, um, to get them. Um, and, uh, I don't know how this made it onto like conservative Twitter, whether it's through like searching the word abortion or what, but it like blew up and someone like snitch tagged the Pope and everyone was calling me a murderer. And it's just like really, uh, yeah, just a lot of uh, Christian reply guys, which is weird because it's like, it's just funny because I don't really care about getting canceled by Christians. Like, I always feel bad when I start getting canceled a little bit by woke people. Like, if a joke goes too far or whatever, <laughs> insensitive. I feel bad about that. But, like, I don't care about getting canceled by these people at all. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, so if, you, if you're if you around on Friday night on Zoom, um, really great lineup of comedians. Um so that'll be cool. And, uh, oh, yeah, we were talking, we were talking about kids. One thing I've been thinking about a lot um, is, like, just how fucked up the whole, like, should schools reopen debate is. I mean, that's got to be – it's just, like, horrible from all angles, right? Because there's so many parents that, like, you know, like, if schools do kind of reopen or, you know, even for, like, a few days a week, like, you know, are you sending your kid – to get a terrible disease or bring that disease back to you and your family um and you know or are you gonna lose your job since you have no child care and maybe you can't afford other options or you know like i mean just thinking about teachers like even if the kids are in school like one day a week with like you know, 10 other kids, then the teachers are still seeing everyone as well as all the staff and a lot of them are older. It's just like, it's really fucked up. It is. And it's like, again, there's, there's really like no winners here because obviously like there's like a lot of reports showing that like kids just straight up are not learning at, at home remotely. And, and I, I understand that. Um, and also, I mean, there's a lot of kids, again, the, uh, the socioeconomic issue comes into it um, in which there are a lot of kids that don't have access to good internet or maybe access to the internet at all. They might not have the proper equipment, um, to make remote learning super accessible. Um, you know, when we had Jabari on, uh, last month, he was like, he said that there were some kids in his class, he's a teacher. And he said there were some kids in his classes who he just straight up has not seen since the pandemic began. Um, and, and obviously, like the social aspect, it's like very, obviously it's terrible for kids to be isolated. I get, I get it. Like, yeah, and you know, like th- there's kids that are being abused, and then absolutely. no, no oh, one knows yeah. about it. It's totally. just, it's really fucked up. But it's also really fucked up to have a bunch of people gathering together in a poorly ventilated area in the middle of a pandemic, especially, you know, teachers who are being required to do that for like $32,000 a year. I know. You know, like that's not enough to risk your life for. Jesus Christ. It certainly is not. Um, I I just don't know anymore. I don't know what, I don't know what to, like, I don't, I don't know what, what any of the answers are. I don't know. It, it, these issues are so are so complex. Obviously, we know also how many kids rely on schools for their meals. That's another issue. I totally get that. That's the reason actually why New York City public schools stayed open for so long 
uh, back in the spring, in the in the late late winter, early spring. Um, but it just seems like it's between a rock and a hard place. Like either way, you're going to be there are some either way there are some kids who are going to be uh majorly adversely affected by whichever outcome the universities is the one that feels like really pretty that feels pretty clear cut to me yeah i mean certainly and you know harvard (laughs) announced this week that even though they're they're going to be fully remote they will still be charging full tuition to their students which is hilarious honestly hilarious yeah um, they have the largest endowment of any university in the continental United States, I'm sure. And one of the largest endowments of any university in the world. Uh, but yeah, the greed is, uh, is a bottomless pit and, um, yeah. And then, you know, I work for a university and, they're going to be doing like basically every class that is that is able to be remote will be remote. And then the ones that are not like I work in the art department of the university where I work and, um, you know, there are some classes like painting and ceramics, like all the ceramics classes have been canceled for obvious reasons. So sorry. Sorry, yeah. kids. Cer- ceramics is canceled. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ceramics <laughs> is problematic. <laughs> problematic. Call Barry Weiss. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they're, like, any in-person component is going to be, like, a maximum. There's, like, a, the class maximum will be, like, six kids per class, I think. Um, but, basically, I mean, again, I think I, I might have brought this up that you know, UNC Chapel Hill is planning on bringing all 40,000 kids back. I think Cornell is too. Yeah. Oh, great. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, and, and the thing about that is, is like K through 12 kids is, is one thing, you know, they're there and then they go home. You like live with, I mean, if you think about, if you think about in college, how easy it was to get sick, period, just because you're living with everyone you go to school with. Like, yeah, I think there was like all these like outbreaks of like meningitis and shit in my dorms. I think that was what it was. I got, God, I got um, mono. My freshman year, I got like mono. I got H1N1. Remember that? Is that Uh, the swine flu? The swine flu. Um... I, yeah, I was. I, I mean, that's just that's really my fault. I was making out with too many strangers, but I uh, got alcoholism. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Kate got alcoholism. Something the CDC will not talk about. Um, yeah. The CDC, the World Health Organization, have not addressed that. Um, but yeah, also yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of issues as with, well as HPV. HPV, oh, sure. Yes. And who, who among us has not? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. God, it's I mean, higher education is just a fucking shit show right now. And the fact that uh, that they're still charging full tuition is absolutely ghoulish, Um, especially Harvard, like tax Harvard's endowment. They should lose their tax exempt status if they're going to pull shit like that. Um, And they should have a long time ago, in my opinion. But and now, you know, uh, ICE is saying that international students can't come back to the U.S. for school, which oh, is... Oh, yeah, they got to fly back in the middle of a pandemic. <sighs> um, yeah, I mean, some universities are getting around this in a way. I saw, like, Columbia is, like, having, like, a one-credit in-person class for all of their uh, international students, which, let's hope, is very socially distanced or yeah. meets on different days or something. I don't know, but um, hopefully universities will, like, really you know, take care of their students because this is really fucked up. We talked about that later in the episode too with uh, our guest, Erica Andiola, er- Erica Andiola from Races. But, oh man, ICE is just so fucked up. And like, I just, you know, before we kind of close up this school conversation, just wanted to talk about like, you know, how fucking 
moms are just like having to quit their jobs like we're now in this weird alternate universe where like uh, women can't work and there's no more schools um uh, no yeah we've, and, like, we've we've never seen it before um yeah and you know women are getting fired because you know they don't have child care or like you know there was a story in the new york times today about a woman um bringing a lawsuit against her employer because like her boss was mad that uh he could hear her kids in the background and some shit and you know it's like women are definitely disproportionately uh, bearing the burden of these like responsibilities of like taking care of kids that are home like the dudes are you know i mean maybe Maybe sometimes it's well-intentioned. Maybe they're the one that's, like, making more money, right? Because, like, men often do make more money. And so maybe it's not just, like, you know, uh, sexism. But, you know, there's also just, like, a lot of very gendered expectations that have played out. Well, there was that... <laughs> there was that... Uh that story that came out like i want to say like maybe three weeks or a month into the coronavirus of that woman who was like literally the ceo of her own company and her husband like made her jettison her own company because he couldn't handle taking care of their kid for three days oh my god i hope they get divorced because she is literally already a single parent but um yeah fellas I, if you have kids i hope you're helping out <laughs> i hope you're parenting not helping out and it's your kid i hope you're parenting your kids i don't know i don't know oh anything about kids oh my god i had a boss once that um was talking about he, he, he had a kid but like he was split custody with the mom and he's like we were like all in like a work meeting like a stand-up and he was like what is it called when a a man takes care of his kid like a manny. We're like, no, like you're a parent. What's wrong with you? I hear so many. I've yeah. In the offices I've worked at over the years, I've heard so many guys refer to watching their kids as babysitting. It's yeah. like, my dude, they are your kids. It's parenting. <laughs> That's what happens when you come inside someone who gets pregnant. You know what? We got to call Clarence Thomas. We got to let him know about this. I don't think he knows. Um, <laughs> Wait, let's put a letter in Harper's. <laughs> signed, signed by Margaret Atwood and Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have noticed that if you come in someone, they can get pregnant. I'll believe Unless it when I... they can't or you come somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. This but, is a good this is a good letter. I mean, look, it's better than the letter from yesterday. I think that the, I honestly think that this is a perfect way to a place to stop for the two of us to stop is talking about where people should come when they have Okay, sex. all right, all right. I got you. <laughs> um all right. So we have uh, a very good episode today. Uh we talked to Erica Andiola um about ice, abolishing ice. Uh what's Remember going that? on? Remember abolishing yeah. ice? We're still doing it. Yeah. Uh, the connections between abolishing ice and abolishing the police and um, also just like what's been going on, what uh, what ice has been up to during the pandemic. I don't look, I, I don't mean to be a spoiler, but none of it's good, yeah. actually. Yeah. You don't want to ask ice, hey, how's your guar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we will be back later this week with a Patreon episode and uh, we'll be back next Wednesday with another regular episode. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I'm so stoked about our guest this week. Um, we are so lucky to be joined remotely, of course, by Erica Andiola, uh, who has a new podcast um, and also uh, has worked for a long time um, with Raices uh, in Texas. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about her new podcast uh, and also about ICE and just why it's terrible and we need to abolish it. Um, so I'm just, I'm so stoked uh, about you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Erica. Yes, of course. Thank you for inviting me and for allowing to have this important conversation with you all. Um, so uh, how is your quarantine going so far? Oh, I'm a little over it, over it to be honest. Uh, it's It's been tough. I think it's, it's hard uh, just mentally not knowing when it's going to stop, but 
you know, just I have a lot of I'm, I'm privileged to be able to work from home. So that's something to be grateful for. But yeah, every day, just taking it one day at a time. I know what you mean. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just lot, lots of Zoom calls all the time. Um, yes. So your podcast is called Homeland Insecurity. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about your podcast and also why you decided to name it that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the post- the podcast was uh, put together um, by our team at Raices, and I am super, super grateful to be the host of the podcast. And the reason why we decided to name name you know the the show uh, Homeland Insecurity was mainly because there's this concept you know as we think right now of the Department of Homeland Security that they're supposed to be protecting the land that they're supposed to be protecting America and in many ways through the history of DHS as we sort of tell the story of how it came together and how it has become this really huge, um, you know, agency um, that has really gotten out of hand, um, has created a lot of insecurity for, uh, for a lot of us, especially people like myself, um, a lot of fear for people like myself. And um, really answering the question of how I, as an immigrant, became the enemy in this country. Um, so we're really going through that history and also hoping that a lot of you know, more Americans can understand why is it important to talk about abolishing ICE and how it's doable because some at some point ICE didn't exist. Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking about ICE all day because I saw that, you know, just among the other many things they're doing, um, students who are studying the United States, if their campuses are physically closed, um, and, you know, students are learning remotely, then those students are no longer allowed to be in the United States and have to, you know, travel during a pandemic, potentially uproot their entire lives. And I think that what the Trump administration is trying to do here, among other things, is, um, you know, just sort of punish schools for staying closed by using undocumented immigrants or, you know, people on student visas as you know, as pawns in this, but it's just, it's just so needlessly cruel. And I feel like you just hear so many stories like this about ice, you know, every day, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important for people to know how we got to this point, not necessarily just ice, but what has allowed, you know, that sort of the, the, the political uh, discourse that has changed since Bush was the president to now Trump being the president and how that change of, of, of narrative has also allowed for Trump and his administration to do what they're doing right now with, you know, uh, students and, and, and visa, you know, that come with visas to study here with DACA recipients, with children at the border. I mean, you name it, we can go on and on and on and all of the different, uh, attacks on the immigrant community. Um, but it's important to note that, you know, when, um, you know, when folks listen to the podcast, a lot of people are really surprised to hear President Bush talk about immigration as something that's a good thing. Um, and since the very, you know, the first the first episode, we, we play some of the clips of Bush saying, you know, uh, talking to uh, President, uh, but then President Bo- uh, Fox from Mexico. I'm talking about how it was, you know, how it's super important to give to pass immigration reform and how immigrants make this country great. And it was like all this narrative that's completely different now under Trump. And really for us to know how that happened and how we're now in this mess and, and that has contributed to eyes being rogue and doing everything that they're doing right now. So for people who may be just learning about this for the first time, um, can you give us a quick overview of like why we ended up in such a different place. Is it, uh, I know, you know, some was a a response to 9-11, but I imagine there's a lot of other factors as well. Yeah, I mean, 9-11 was a huge, huge um, sort of uh, trigger point. It was was one of those moments in history that shaped immigration law uh, as it is right now. And um, the reason why we start with 9-11 is that the point in history that we all need to know about when we're think we're, when we're 
figuring out why ICE exists and, and, and Border Patrol, why they're so out of control and, you know, everything, how DHS is shaped right now. Um, it, it started because when 9-11 happened, there was this entire um, restructuring of the government. Um, and not only that, there was this panic that Americans were going through, including myself. I mean, I was in the United States. I was a, you know, I think at that time I was, I might have been like 13, 14 uh, wow. year old uh, undocumented immigrant who was about to go to high school or I was actually in junior high school and 9-11 happened. I was terrified just as in many other Americans. But what ended up happening is that at that moment, the you know, Bush and a lot of these political leaders decided that the way to make Americans feel safer was to restructure the government and now create this entire bureaucracy that's now called the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and not only that, they beefed up um, uh, CBP, the, the um, Border Patrol, they beefed it up so, so much that now it's one of the biggest agencies, even bigger than the FBI, even bigger than the many other agencies. They have so much money because there was an understanding that by doing that, by giving more money to CBP, by hiring more agents, um, and by creating ICE, you know, that didn't exist before 9-11. ICE was non-existent. By creating all of this um, sort of beefed up agencies um, that they were going to able to um, stop terrorism. And at the end of the day, they didn't necessarily stop terrorism. What ended up happening is that they created another enemy. And that enemy was people like myself, uh, people who were uh, immigrants who were coming through the border and at this point, you know, we're not necessarily looking at DHS to protect Americans from the real threats like COVID right now. Um, we're looking at them to separate families. We're looking at them to like do everything in their power to kick immigrants out of the country uh, who might not necessarily pose a threat to America. Um, so there's so much more to it. I would love for people to, you know, to listen to it and to, you know, really think through, through why we have DHS right now and do we really need it? Do we really need eyes? Do we really need CBP to be so big and so powerful? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, people, I, I want to believe that people are sort of beginning to examine this issue a little bit more deeply, especially in light of the conversation about abolishing the police or defunding the police. Um, what do you see are the connections between the way that ICE operates and the way that, you know, policing operates in general in this country? Yeah, there's there's a lot to that. You know, I think the very first um, sort of immigration 101 that I always give people is that um, immigration as an agency, meaning ICE, they work very, very closely with the police in majority of the cities in America. And um, one of the reasons why we constantly call for the police to be, you know, even in the immigrant rights world, we, we call for the police to be defunded. We call for the police to be um, sort of reshaped to being um, actually protecting the community and not terrifying the community. And with immigrants, not only not only do we see a lot of, uh, you know, brown and black folks who are being killed by the police, we also see a lot of people in the community who don't trust the police because they work so closely with ICE. And I would also say that the majority of people who come through that are not necessarily crossing the border, but people who live here in the U.S. who are undocumented, Majority of us end up in detention centers and deported because the police are the first contact that we come across. And then we get transferred to immigration uh, after that. And so, you know, it's, it's, they're super, super involved in, 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 in the operations of ICE. And that's important to know. And then also because, you know, it's this continuous, um, sort of merging between immigration and criminal justice that a lot of people don't see. Um, and we have to detangle that. We have to make sure that, you know, we, we, um, 
not only defund the police, but also get rid of detention centers and ensuring that immigration is no longer criminalized. I completely agree. And I've been thinking a lot about it lately, too, because, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and um, I keep reading stories about COVID in ICE detention centers, um, you know, which which makes sense because it's impossible to social distance in a detention center. Um, and it, it feels really scary, you know, um, and I, I just, you know, I've also been thinking about, um, you know, other other issues like, you know, people who are not eligible for any of the even meager relief that our government has decided to, you know, give people, whether it's, you know, $1,200 or, you know, minimally expanded unemployment. But what are some of the other issues that you would like people to think about in terms of the impact of the pandemic um, on undocumented people? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great and timely question. I think right now, um, there's a lot. There's a lot um, that has been impacting the immigrant community. And one of the biggest, you know, you mentioned that, which is detention centers. Um, you know, just the fact that immigration, and we actually talked about it in one of the episodes uh, when we specifically focus on detention, but detention actually didn't start it. It didn't start as a punishment. It was not intended to be a punishment for immigrants. It was intended for um, to be a place where uh, immigrants were held for a short period of time. Um, and eventually it ended up growing and growing because of course it got privatized and uh, we had companies like uh, Civic, uh, Core Civic, now that they changed their name now to Core Civic, we have the, the, the Geo Group, all these private detention center um, companies who now, because they profit out of having more and more people detained, um, they have been investing also in Congress, giving more money to detention centers. And so it's, you know, it's been a cycle that has led us to having a huge amount. I mean, thousands and thousands of immigrants being detained across the country. And so with COVID, what has happened and what we have seen at Raices, we have, um, you know, uh, numerous clients who are right now in detention. And what we have seen uh, through their own stories is that not only are they afraid because they're just detained, period, and they're in a prison-like setting, but also the private companies are not necessarily following the directives of the government, and they don't have to. They're, you know, they're they're privately owned, and in many ways, um, it has, I think, definitely created a worse a worse situation for the people who are detained. And we're seeing a lot of families. Um, we're working with literally entire families who are in detention right now at the family detention centers. Uh, we're working with individuals. And, you know, since the very beginning, we saw a ticking bomb. It was since the very beginning, people telling us that they were washing their hands with shampoo because they had no soap available to them at all. People who had no way of social distancing. Um, you know, people who were finding out about the coronavirus through TV and watching Univision and Telemundo or any other, you know, uh, media that they watch inside of the, of the detention centers before they even found out through the guards or the people who worked at the detention center. And wow. I mean, if you can imagine being in there and, and hearing that from the from TV that the, you might get this virus without knowing it from the people that are supposed to be taking care of you in some ways. Um, it's really scary. So it's been a huge problem. And the last thing I'll say, you know, also with the undocumented community is many people in our community are essential workers and we ended up being the ones to have, you know, to continue to cook, to continue to pick, um, the, the food that we're all eating, you know, in, in, in the farms, um, we're the ones who are in the meatpacking plants, um, having to continue to work regardless of what's happening with a pandemic. And so it's taken a toll in, in the immigrant community. And Congress basically ignored the fact that we needed support for the immigrant community. And we have not gotten any type of support from the government at all. I know that Trump's immigration policy has been notably different from the Obama administration's, you know, in terms of uh, family separation and the remain in Mexico policy. But, you know, I think a lot of people are 
you know, assuming that if we elect Biden in November, that, uh, you know, the troubles are over and that everything's going to be compassionate from now on. Um, what do you think are the actual changes that we could expect with the Democratic administration at this point? Yeah, so I would say that we have to learn from our mistakes. And, you know, it's hard because here we are, we have we have a nominee, nothing else we can do about it. Other, you know, I don't know, something weird happens, which 2020 is weird anyway. But we have in this moment a nominee in the Democratic Party. And um, the, I think the very specific thing we know about this nominee is that they are very much connected to the Obama administration. I mean, it's a, to me, it's, it's sort of an extension of the Obama administration. And, you know, even though Trump has made things got, you know, completely worse for immigrants, the situation under the Obama administration was not great either. And, you know, that's one of the, on episode four of the podcast, we talk a lot about um, how, you know, the programs actually that allowed the police to work with ICE was some of those programs were created and some of them were strengthened by the Obama administration. And so you had this record number of deportations that happened um, that now kind of blew up under the Trump administration. And, you know, it was kind of a machine that was handed over to Trump and was like, here, make it worse. And he yeah. did. So now here we are and we're trying to ensure that um, we continue to push this message that we can't, we, we cannot go back to that past if there is a democratic president that we need to learn from our mistakes and that we're hoping that on day one, on day one of the new administration, if we have a new administration, there is everything in, in the power of the president to change what can be changed through the executive. Um, and there's a lot that can be changed through the executive office, um, without having to wait for Congress. What could be changed through the executive? So one of the things that happened through the executive was DACA, for example. And DACA, you know, one of the great things that just happened with a Supreme Court decision is that it was not ruled unconstitutional. So it is lawful to have, um, you know, a group of people in the immigrant community uh, protected from deportation. And that can be expanded. So if you can imagine having more and more people who are undocumented being able to be protected while Congress is still working towards a permanent solution, that that will help our community. Things like ending detention for immigrants can be done through the executive. Ending the um, connection between the police and ICE can be done. And abolishing ICE can be done through the president. And so I know this is a lot of pressure on Biden, but hey, you know, we can't go back to the Obama era either. So for folks who may be new to the idea of abolishing ICE, um, what does that mean? I think, you know, a lot of us have been learning about police abolition. And, you know, of course, a lot of pe amazing people have been writing about it for a really long time. But, you know, for, for folks who may be newer to the idea of abolishing ICE, what does that look like? What does an actually good immigration policy look like? Is there one? You know, is it, you know, better to just not have a policy at all and there isn't borders? Yeah, I mean, what's important to note is that it's it's an actual body of, of people who are organized. It's an agency. And when this agency isn't working and with this agency, you know, they're spending basically the majority of their time raping people apart from their families or literally um, deporting the majority of people who are being deported right now are people who have, you know, misdemeanors or or nothing, you know, or... Um, and even, you know, people who did have a felony, maybe at some point, you know, 20 years later, they're getting deported. And so it's just the, 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 the focus right now of eyes, it's not necessarily keeping us safer at all, which is supposed, it was supposed to be what DHS was doing, was supposed to be doing. And so the reason why we made this podcast and why I would love for, you know, more people to listen to it is because we actually go back to the time when we didn't have eyes and, and at a time when you know, we were actually talking about a Republican president was talking about creating immigration reform and, and, and fixing the immigration system 
without having another agency um, literally deporting people every single day. So we can we can imagine a different world. We can imagine a different type of uh, immigration system and also actually look at what needs to be enforced and perhaps looking at, you know, um, I'm sorry, but I, I always go back to saying, uh, can we actually look at the actual problem of white people in the United States are suffering? And a lot of those problems don't come from immigrants. A lot of those problems come from greed. They come from people getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. Yeah. And yet they have us fighting against each other for, for resources when there's so much for so many people. Um, so yeah, we have to rethink and we have to reimagine what immigration should look like in this country. And I don't think ICE is part of that vision. It seems like not. <laughs> they, do, they don't seem like uh, great people. So, yeah. Um, They're no, rogue. It's, They're very rogue. Yeah, they, they suck. Um, you know, I, I think like, I think, um, you know, family separation um, a couple years ago, uh, you know, there were, there were so many um, images of family separation in the news. And, you know, I just I haven't. I haven't seen it as much in national media, but my understanding is that there are many, many families that have not been reunited. Um, can you give us any update on the status of that? Yeah, it is. It's it's something that continues to be a problem. I mean, the fact that I didn't keep a, even a database of who was getting separated or any type of, you know, way to track. So they just um, took people's been, kids and then Yeah, that's I mean, it. it was, let's, you know, we the tr the president said we have to do this. So here we go. Let's take the children away from their parents. And there was no way of, of tracking who they were separating. And so, you know, it's like having your child, you know, taken away at, at the shopping center and, and nobody took, nobody tracked that. Nobody knows where your child is. That's exactly what happened. Um, and so that's one very specific issue that continues to be a problem. But also, um, there's still family separation happening. And one of the issues that we're working on right now with Raices is um, that a lot of Americans don't know that there's actually family detention centers where um, there's three family detention centers in the United States, two of them in Texas, one in Pennsylvania. And there's literally children who are detained with their parents the um the last statistic that i heard from our family detention team um who works in this center is that the majority of the children are actually an average of four to five year olds oh. uh, who live in prison-like settings and most of them have been in there for more than 100 days that's the average average family who has been detained and so our um, worry is that just recently, one of the judges uh, who has been looking at family separation um, in something very specific called the Flores um, case, which basically says that children should not be detained for more than 20 days. And the judge said, I need ICE to release children before July 17th of this year who are detained. There should be no children detained um, right now. That's what the judge said. What the judge didn't say is that parents should also be released with their children. So we are really, really worried that in the next uh, week or two, we might actually see another round of family separation happening and that it, it really is another ticking bomb that's about to happen and that we're hoping to create enough momentum for Americans to push back so that we don't see another one of these um, circumstances as it happened in 2018. Yeah, yeah. Um... Although, you know, I think like a lot of the a lot of the rhetoric around this is, you know, that kids shouldn't be in jail, which, of course, I agree with kids should not be in jail. But I mean, I don't think anyone should be in jail, but especially people who have committed no crime. It's 100 percent legal to seek asylum in the That's United right. States. And people have been, you know, detained um, and tortured in many cases, starved, beaten, um, for doing something that is not even against the law. Not that that would make it okay if it were, but mm -hmm. um, I, I like what is the actual experience that someone could expect if they're attempting to seek asylum in the United States right now? Oh, it's, 
It's a hard situation because of COVID. So majority of people who are seeking asylum are being turned away. Um, no matter whether they're entire families, individuals, or children. Um, a lot of children are actually, no matter their age, they're being turned back. Um, and that wasn't happening before. We had a lot of the people we uh, serve at Raices are actually children in, in um, the custody of HHS, the, the uh, Health and Human Services. And right now, we don't see as many children coming in because they're getting turned back at the border um, and also entire families and individuals. And so what this administration is trying to do right now is actually end asylum. Um, that's the reason why they're doing a lot of what they're doing, even any DACA, the reason why they ended DACA in the first place or, or attempted to end DACA was so that they could use that as a bargaining chip to end, end asylum. Um, and so that's their goal. And unfortunately, a lot of it is happening. Um, some of the families who are making it um, are actually a lot of a lot of them are actually black families uh, who are coming from Haiti uh, from Cameroon, from other parts of Africa, the, and a big part of them are actually right now in family detention centers. And what we're seeing is that they're doing everything in their power, and meaning ICE is doing everything in their power to deport the families instead of allowing them and giving them a chance to stay in the U.S. And the last thing I'll say is that they're doing everything in their power. And one th one of the newest developments is that they are actually furloughing. Uh, they're I don't know if that's the right word to say, but they're going to furlough about 75% of the staff that works at USCIS, which is the other agency under DHS. And USCIS is the ones who, who conduct all the interviews with asylum seekers to see if they have credible fear. And so what we're going to see is literally 75% of the entire agency that works to give people asylum that works to give people um, residency and U.S. citizenship and all these applications um, to, you know, um, for immigration processes, 75% of their employees are going to be furloughed. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's no coincidence. They're doing all of this for asylum to be gone. And it's it's that's how it is now. And the only way that it's going to be changing is if we switch president that we we and this entire administration from doing what they're doing and people are you know like pre-trump administration people only qualified for asylum if they were in you know like real danger of being mm -hmm. hurt or killed is that is, can you explain a little bit about like what seeing asylum even is for folks who may not be familiar with that distinction yeah, I mean, if you if you are able to prove that you are running away because of political reasons, um, if you're being targeted uh, for political reasons, um, if you are able to prove that you have been uh, running away from from violence, um, you know, it's 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 a really hard process, and one of the first hurdles that you have to go through is something called a credible fear interview, which is something that an asylum officer basically does with you. And it's, it's very, very traumatizing. I mean, they sit people down and they ask them like, why are you leaving your country? And they dig and dig and dig to try to find the truth of why you're leaving your country. And listen, like some people might not necessarily, you know, some people might be coming in and being like, well, this is my story and not necessarily telling the truth, but yet still having the need to migrate because they were so poor and, you know, and in the country of, of origin. But there, they might be saying a different story, but there's a lot of people who are telling the truth and are starting and, and are having to be re-traumatized by as an asylum officer um, and so they have to go through that hurdle. And if they pass the credible fear interview, then they are given the chance to see a judge. And then they are basically given the chance to continue to their process. But a lot of those people who are going through that process are held in detention centers right now. So if you can imagine people that I just mentioned who have been with their families and their children for more than 100 days at a family detention center, all of them are literally just waiting to hear from a judge or are waiting to figure out what's happening with their case of asylum, not because they committed any type of violent crime. Ah, oh, that is, oh man, this is just, it, that is so disgusting. Um, 
that people are being treated that way. And, you know, especially because the United States was involved in a lot of the time creating the conditions that people are Mm -hmm. trying to get away from. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's a whole other podcast that we could totally make. And we haven't talked about that in the Hulan Insecurity podcast yet. But that's one of the one of the sort of pieces that a lot of people don't recognize and don't talk about, and which is the intervention of the United States in other countries and how that creates the environment for people to want to leave. And, you know, a huge example are fair trade agreements, you know, going into what happened in the 90s with Mexico um, and NAFTA um, and I'm sure a lot of people know what NAFTA is, but, you know, this, this trade agreements, um, that ended up actually creating a worse situation economically for Mexico and for Central America ended up creating more, um, need for people to leave and migrate. And in the nineties, you had lots of Mexicans migrating into the United States, me included and my family included. And the majority of us can tell you that we were struggling so much after that agreement happened with the U.S. Now, military intervention also happens. And one thing that a lot of people don't talk about is climate change and the fact that we're not doing everything in our power to intervene in climate. And a lot of people, especially in places like Guatemala and and, and, and other countries that are literally leaving because they don't have their crops growing anymore. They don't have um, the living situations that they used to have, especially, you know, people who are poor, um, because climate is completely changing their, their, their livelihood. Um, climate change are changing their livelihood. So there's a lot of pushing factors that we don't recognize in America because we're so focused on what's going on in the country. We don't look, you know, past that. Can you talk a little bit before we wrap up about the work that Raices is doing? Yeah, I mean, just Raices provide services. Um, we have uh, our legal services um, programs and our social services program. Uh, it, we're mainly based in Texas. Our advocacy is national, but our services are based in Texas. And, you know, we see people from, uh, again, children who are in shelters to families in detention to individuals in detention uh, to people who are basically seeking, um, you know, to apply for DACA, TPS, a lot of other uh, immigration services. But what we're also trying to do is making sure that we are also changing the narrative and that we're also changing the policies that allow for a lot of our clients and the people we work with and we serve uh, to be treated that, they were, that, that they're being treated right now. And some of the campaigns that we have happening right now is pushing for family detention to end. Um, I think that that's that should be a no brainer for America right now. Absolutely. Uh, we're also making sure that DACA recipients um, are not, you know, that are still protected and that we're pushing back against the Trump administration wanting to end the program. Um, and also the last thing I'll say is that we are working very hard to echo what the, fa- the, the Black Lives Matter movement has been saying, which is that defunding the police is going to have a huge impact in our communities including um, the immigrant community, black immigrants, and uh, I think a lot of people of color as a whole, as a, you know, where it's going to help us a lot. And also that includes abolishing ICE. That is, uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome to talk to you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure and tell our listeners? Um, no, I would just, you know, would love to invite everybody to com and, you know, give it a listen. And also, uh, it'll have a link on the website to check out Raices and everything that we do. Follow us on social media. We're constantly asking people to support all of our campaigns and to get involved to make a change in this uh, current situation that is really hard for everyone but especially for those who are the most vulnerable so get involved and um thank you so much for inviting me thank you so much for coming on the show erica 
Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your land.